thank you very much. This is uh, an incredible crowd. I want to begin by thanking, uh, well, everybody at the OI for first of all inviting me. This is uh, an incredible honor, and Gretel and Ray for uh, for for choosing me as the Braidwood Scholar. Uh, I think you probably heard this from so many archaeologists, but Braidwood has been a bit of a a personal idol for for most of my career. So that you, there aren't really words that really express how I feel about this. So thank you very much. All right, so let's get this started, shall we? There's so much stuff in our life that we really sort of take for granted without really thinking about where they come from, what their backstory might be, and what effect they might have had on history and culture throughout time. Wine, I would argue, is one such thing. It's been a prime and powerful mover in human civilization, both in the sacred and the profane. When one thinks of something like wine, it immediately invokes linkages to specific cultures, like France, Italy, Spain. It's something that pretty much every culture partakes of or has partaken of at some point of their history. It's often tied to concepts of luxury, joie de vie. Wine played an important role in ancient societies and continues to do so even today. But what exactly is the history of this illustrious cultural beverage? Now, the history of wine is actually quite old, as we're obviously going to find out more tonight. Most people understand, of course, that the Greeks brought their wines to Italy and the Romans took their wines to the Gauls. Marseille was actually one of the first uh, French regions to be introduced to Roman, uh, Roman vines. Although many forget, actually, it was the Phoenicians who brought vineyards to North Africa, Sardinia, and Spain. Nowadays, some countries such as the USA, Canada, of course, uh, South Africa, South America, Australia, and now even Northern Europe and China are increasing their wine production and, of course, consumption. But how much further back can we push its history? Technical difficulties. Now, when you dig through Western Judeo-Christian culture, you already have hints at the greater antiquity of wine. Now, according to the Bible, the first thing Noah did after the flood was plant a vineyard on Mount Ararat, which is in Eastern Anatolia in the Caucasus. Then he made wine and became drunk. <laughs> so drunk that he actually passes out naked, as you do. Uh, in his tent, uh, I see Jim nodding quietly there. <laughs> uh, and he is seen naked by his son, Ham. When Noah realizes that Ham is seen as naked, he of course curses, oddly enough, Ham's son, Canaan. What's interesting, though, is the theme and the geography is parallel in uh, many ancient cultures, with a hero such as, say, Utnapishtum, Atarhasis, Ziosudra, uh, 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 surviving a flood that was sent by the gods and landing on a mountain, say, you know, Mount Nisser in the Babylonian versions, and which appears to have been roughly at the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates River, so eastern Anatolia and Caucasia. And, of course, one of the first things that is either discovered or planted are grapes, and wine is always made. The Iranians even have their own interesting little story. You have uh, Jamshid. He's a, he's a mythological Iranian king, known from the Avestan texts, and he's credited with discovering the fermentation of wine. Apparently, the way the story goes is that Jamshid loved eating grapes, and he had a large collection in his storerooms. One day, he sent his servants down to go get some grapes for him to snack on, uh, and while the servants were in the room, they basically uh, were overcome by some mystical fumes, pass out, and almost die. 
probably from the CO2 of the fermentation process. The grapes were then deemed as poisonous and the room was locked. No one was allowed to go in there. Then there's sort of two versions of the story. Uh, either one of his harem girls becomes despondent and suicidal because uh, she has a chronic headache or because she was actually, the other one is she was rejected by the king. And so she decides that she's going to commit suicide and she knows that there's this poisonous vat down in the basement. So she, she breaks in, drinks some of this poison, and proceeds, proceeds to get drunk. I guess that's one way of getting rid of your headache. So freed of her depression, she introduces this uh, drink to the king who falls in love with this newly discovered beverage. But what's the reality? Well, uh, what we have here is the, the, what we call the, the Paleolithic hypothesis that was really sort of put forward a lot by Patrick McGovern, who is really sort of the, the godfather of uh, anything about ancient alcohol whatsoever. Uh, and the, basically the discovery of the fermentation of grapes and berries is an accident, probably that happened with the early hunting-gathering societies. Now what you have to understand is that the yeast that is necessary for the fermentation of grape juice into wine grows naturally on the grapes themselves. And fermentation happens spontaneously, naturally, all the time. And what he suggests is that humans probably would have observed animals such as birds or something like that flying all askew because they'd been snacking on some berries that had started to ferment. And humans being humans decided, I'll give that a try. <laughs> or perhaps the idea is that they'd collected a bunch of grapes in some sort of stone vessels been crushed by the natural weight of the berries, and then the juice had fermented at the bottom, and when they got to the bottom of the vat, they, of course, decided, I'll drink that. Uh, eventually, either through intentionally, well, eventually intentionally squeezing and making more of this delicious liquid, collecting it, essentially what you need to come away from with this is that wine is natural. It just wants to be made. And we would have discovered it, and we did actually numerous times, wherever grapes grow. And so uh, therein lies the issue. The key to understanding the history of wine is understanding the indigenous environment that the, of the plant in question. So where do grapes grow? Well, you can see on the map here, uh, create a wide, wide area. The wild grapevine has a wide distribution across the Middle East and Mediterranean world. It's a hardy plant that can survive and thrive in many different environments. And there are somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000 varieties of grapes that are found throughout the entire world, which can, of course, be used to produce a dizzying array of, of uh, products from just simple fruits to syrups to vinegar and, of course, wine. It would appear that the grape was domesticated several times, of course, in different regions, but based on the number of domesticated varieties present in the region today, there are about six... I think at last count, we were somewhere over 600 native varieties to Georgia alone versus the whopping 23 that they have in the great uh, wine land of France. So it's believed that because you have this vast variety of grapes, it's because they've been interbreeding for such a long time that this is where grapes were first domesticated in Caucasia, modern Georgia, Armenia, and eastern Turkey. But the question, of course, is, when did they start making wine with it? So our earliest evidence for ancient wine actually has a great little Canadian connection and a U of T connection. Yay, us. The U University of Toronto and the Royal Ontario Museum, excavations at the site of Godin Tepe in, uh, in central western Iran, 
uh, headed by the late T. Kyler Young, revealed a, a town of a southern Mesopotamian entrepot dated to about the fourth millennium BC. And in the excavations, they discovered a number of these storage jars that you see here. This is the one that's on the display in the ROM uh, that had this yellowish liquid, well, yellowish residue, I should say, at the bottom of the vessel. And it was because of this vessel that Pat McGovern, in conjunction with a number of chemists, developed the test to look for the chemical signature that would be left behind from wine. They discovered that all of the vessels produced evidence of tartaric acid, which showed that they had at one point contained some sort of grape liquid. But it was the presence of terebinth resin that suggested that that liquid was wine. Essentially, what you're looking at here is an ancient Greek ratsina. The name ratsina comes from the terebinth resin that is put inside of it. Later examination of a, of a, by, by McGovern by a material from a Neolithic site called Haji Firuz Tepe in, uh, in sort of northwestern Iran by Lake Urmia, uh, dated to between 5400 and 5000 BC, produced similar evidence of an ancient ratsina, pushing wine production back to the Neolithic. Now, in the 1970s, the Georgian National Museum and the Institute of Archaeology of the Georgian National Academy of Sciences uh, were instituted a number of excavations, particularly at the site of Shulaberis Gora, near the, the modern town of Marneuli in, in Georgia. The excavations, led by Alexander Zhabakishvili, uh, who in just about every photo I see of him looks like Popeye, <laughs> revealed five levels of a Neolithic village. The village consisted of a series of circular mud brick structures varying in size from about one to four meters in diameter. But also found in the excavations were some carbonized grape seeds, which led Pat McGovern to sample uh, some of the vessels or fragments of the vessels that were found in the excavations, which tentatively produced evidence of tartaric acid, suggesting that the wine production in the Caucasus could perhaps be pushed back as far as 5,800 BC. One of the key problems is that the tartaric acid couldn't really say whether it was the result of something that was in the soil or something that actually belonged on the shirt. So that was why there was always the ambiguity. So this leads us to the new research that I'm involved with in conjunction with the government of the Republic of Georgia, a project known as the Research and the Popularization of the Georgian Grape and Wine Culture. It's a bit of a mouthful, and I'm not sure how we can make that any better. Now, drinking, in particular wine, is an in integral part of Georgian culture and pervades it way more than French, Italian, or other sort of Western European societies. Uh, honestly, I wish there was a way to properly introduce it to you, although I would actually say that there was a, a good a documentary that was done by a couple of people here in Chicago that was just released uh, this last uh, March called Our Blood is Wine. Uh, which, if you can find it on, I think they were selling it on Amazon or something like that, uh, it gives you a very good concept of what wine means to Georgians. But one thing I can tell you is that drinking wine in Georgia is an endurance sport. <laughs> so Georgian wines are unique for the way that they are traditionally made, what's known as the Quevri method, named after the clay pot that they are tr traditionally fermented and aged in. <laughs> The wine uh, is, what, what makes it different is that the wine is fermented on the must. The skins and the seeds and the stems, all of them are put together into this vessel. And they sit there for anywhere between three weeks or eight months. Uh, the Quevri themselves are specialized vessels. They have a very distinctive shape. Uh, and they are often quite large. Uh, 
largest one I saw, I think you could probably drive a car into. And they're usually buried into the ground up to their neck. Now these characteristics have a special role in their function. When you have them buried in the ground and you have uh, a different, well basically the temperature differentiation between the air and the ground itself actually creates convection currents, which are amplified by the shape of the wine. And so what that does is it keeps the wine in circulation, keeps it in contact with the skins for much longer, which is what gives Georgian wines an incredible body to them. Now the Cuevri themselves have a long history, going back for sure in their traditional shape and format in about the 8th century BC. We believe we can sort of push them back well into the Bronze Age as well, perhaps not quite the exact same shape. Uh, and perhaps even into the Neolithic. Uh, what you're looking at here is, uh, well, a series that uh, on the top left, this is uh, one of the suspected Neolithic cuevries from the site of Hramis di Rigora. Uh, on the, the bottom left is the, the site of Treligorebi, which is just outside of the, the modern town of Tbilisi, where we actually have our oldest confirmed wine cellar. Now, Given the variety of grapes that are found in Caucasia, it was understood, like I said, that they'd been intermixing for a long period of time. So this was the log logical place to look for the earliest ev uh, evidence for the domestication of grape. Now, excavations have been going on in Georgia under the Soviets since the 30s. And as we saw, Neolithic sites were producing uh, images of these vessels. Well, there's Hramis Didigora again, where you can see what looks like a cluster of grapes, which again was a hint that something might be up here. And when archaeologists began to look carefully and examine the botanical remains, they were finding, like I, like I showed you, the, the odd carbonized seed as well. Um, and it was this is what, what, what led the, the, for the examination of one of the sites from Shulaveriskora that produced that telltale evidence of, of wine. Uh, that is where Shulaveriskora is, and it's the neighboring site of Gadachrilligora, uh, which is the focus of our excavations. It's, Actually, uh, uh, well, it's the focus of our work. I'll be coming back to that a little bit later. So this project is funded by the Georgian national government uh, through the Department of Agriculture. They're, they actually have, in the Department of Agriculture, they have the, um, uh, basically, it's the Institute of Wine. Uh, this gives you an idea how seriously they take their wine. And uh, it's not just an archaeological project, it's multidisciplinary in nature. We are working with agronomists, DNA specialists, palynologists, paleobotanists, climatologists, and of course the dirt monkeys, the archaeologists. All basically trying to work in concerts to understand the antiquity of wine uh, and the production of wine in Georgia, and also the role that Georgia played in the spread of the great varieties that we know today, and of course the spread of wine culture. So using some of the pollen data, basically what we have are viticultural paleoclimate reconstructions that were developed for Georgia, resulting in a series of maps showing the growth potential areas of vines in different time periods, That's what you're looking at here, from the Neolithic through to the Middle Ages, with the late Chalcolithic and early Bronze Age containing the most favorable environment, their environmental conditions for growing grapes. So this is the period for the maximum uh, grape growth potential and the importance of which we'll circle back to later, a little bit later. The DNA analysis has so far produced some interesting patterns. No, we haven't been able to get any DNA from any of the ancient seeds, it's just not possible. Uh, but looking at a lot of the modern ones, we start to see some interesting patterns. 
First, it seems that the Georgian cultivated varieties were crossbred with Asian species, uh, which would have resulted in larger grapes and therefore more juice. And this, their guess based on, on, on their understanding of the changes in DNA happened sometime around the fifth or fourth millennium. Second, there's this interesting link between Caucasian and East Anatolian cultivars and modern Western European varieties, specifically those that are found in Spain, Portugal, but also uh, North African and Syrian cultivars, the importance of which we'll circle back to at the end. So the, the late Neolithic period in Caucasia is represented by an archaeological culture that's known as the Shulaveri Shomutepe culture. Uh, we'll just call it SSC for now. This culture is found across uh, southeastern Georgia, western Azerbaijan, and northern Armenia, with the greatest concentration being in the Kfemokartli region, uh, where the sites of Gadashrilygora and Shulaverigora are found. And these two sites are the focus of the archaeological component of this larger project. The component is actually run as an archaeological field school for, for the University of Toronto. Uh, we be began our excavations in uh, 2016 uh, under, well, what we're calling the Gadachrilygora Regional Archaeological Project Expedition, or just because I am that cheesy and I love my acronyms. <laughs> so much easier to say. So the site of Gadachrilygora is the main focus of the excavation. It represents a small Neolithic village about 0.6 hectares in size. Now, cursory examinations began at the site in about 2002. Larger scale excavations began in 2014. I joined it in 2015, and we had our first uh, archaeological field school under Grape uh, in 2016 with my co-directors, Andrew Graham and Mindia Jalabadze. Now, one of the main aims of the excavation is to excavate a large portion of the settlement and to help preserve it and develop it into an archaeological park to help develop tourism for the Marneuli region in particular, but also the Republic of Georgia in general. There are two main phases of Neolithic occupation at the site, with hints of a third ephemeral Calcolithic uh, uh, early Bronze Age occupation, perhaps seasonal ones, if you will. Uh, the Neolithic phases, or horizons, each produce three sub-phases of construction and renovations, and are dominated by that same sort of pattern of circular buildings, uh, with a predominance for combining two round structures into this figure eight pattern. Now, the upper phase, uh, phase, the upper phase, phase one, of architecture does appear to be less dense than the lower one, but it does have some of the larger structures. In this case, we have some that are six plus meters in diameter, which are probably some of the largest uh, structures for the SSC that are found that have been found yet. And these are not found in the lower level so far. How do we understand these larger structures is unclear, of course, whether it's the result of changes in family size, family organization, increased wealth, wealth or social stratification. Too early to say, check back with us in a couple of years. At the same time, in 2016, we undertook smaller soundings at the neighboring site of Shulaveriskora, basically untouched since the 1970s. One of the main aims was to obtain soil samples to provide that baseline comparison for McGovern's earlier positive results of wine residue, but also to get a better idea of the stratigraphy of the site, since the publication is a little dicey, if you will. Uh, and particularly try to understand the relationship between Shulaveris and Gadachrili. And also, of course, try to see if there's any more lower levels that have yet to be investigated. So we began by having the slumped-in fill from the old excavation area removed, uh, which was readily visible, 
and then identifying a small corner of architecture in the northwest part of the square, which is what you're looking at here. Now the excavations reveal four phases of construction in this operation, and these phases seem to have followed one another in very quick succession. The earliest phase of the wall ex excavated in the test trench uh, was also uh, had an associated bin, uh, followed by a later phase of the same wall associated with a hearth, which I'll again circle back to later on in this talk. Uh, the west and the north bulk showed evidence of significant burning, while most of the western section was actually still dominated by fill that we didn't quite get out from the old excavations. But at the same time, we brought in a uh, step trench on the west side of the tell, basically trying to get a better idea of the stratigraphy and give us a chance to go off the mound itself and find some of the earlier levels. The step trench produced six levels, five of which had evidence of architecture. And then the sounding on the, on the southwest at the bottom step revealed another two meters of occupational material that have, we just only started to uh, investigate this past year. So it shows that occupation continued mainly continuously at the site uh, without much interruption through most of the sixth millennium. The ceramic assemblage recovered from Gattachili and Shulaveri was represented by a small corpus of diagnostic sherds, particularly from the lower phases of, of Gattachili. For some strange reason, the upper level has actually very little uh, ceramics, uh, which again may be sort of reflective of specialized use of, of space at the site. Shulaveris does produce a more reasonable uh, collection, if you will, and the ceramics are being analyzed by a U of T graduate student by the name of Khaled Abujayab. Uh, <coughs> uh, the ceramics themselves consist predominantly of step, uh, steep walled pots with narrow flat bases, often with a basket impression still on, on the bottom, and of course applique decorations with the common sort of knobs, crescents. We unfortunately haven't, well, oh, sorry, that's not true. I do have the new photo of the one piece that might be a collection of grape, grapes on the side. Um, and these are all basically found at both sites. Uh, the upper ephemeral level uh, that we now understand to belong to the Calcolithic uh, produced a number of Sioni sherds, which is the Calcolithic culture of the region, as well as a few later Kuroroxes, uh, well, actually a Kuroroxes grave, suggesting that there is later uh, occupation at the site, although probably more seasonal than anything else. So the faunal and lithics have yet to be fully examined. Uh, there's a preponderance of, of bone tools, particularly bone awls, but also scrapers and remarkably well, uh, one remarkably well-preserved spoon that you can see up there, which was intact when we found it, but then somebody dropped it and stepped on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not quite the words I used, but... <laughs> Uh, some bone handles actually produce evidence of bitumen, suggesting they were actually for, uh, for hafting and gluing some of the lithics uh, for, to form composite tools. Lithics are almost entirely obsidian, consisting of blades, bladelets, and awls. We hope to have further information uh, about these different in industries in the future. But of course, one of the main aims is to examine for evidence of early wine production, which had been suggested but never really substantiated by the previous data. If you remember the, uh, the aforementioned botanical data, all those seeds that had been found at the different sites, well, we radiocarbon dated them, and they all dated to the 18th century. <laughs> this is where you have to be very careful about contamination. <coughs> so that, we were quite uh, despaired by that. However, our other, uh, our, um, well, our present flotation sampling program has, uh, has really ramped up, and we 
but we also have yet to identify any vitus remains in these collections. However, our, our other analyses have begun to fill in the gaps in this data set. Numerous soil samples taken from vessels, surfaces, and storage bins were analyzed by uh, Aliso Kvavadze at the Georgian National Museum for palynological remains, so pollen. <coughs> the analysis detected large amounts of grape pollen, particularly uh, contained within the storage vessels, suggesting that they had contained some sort of grape product in these Neolithic vessels. Further identification of the starches and epidermal cells of, of grape vines as well as the microscopic hairs of small fruit flies. You know, if you've ever gone collecting fruit or if you've ever even crushed grapes, almost immediately you have those tiny little flies that buzz around your fruit, finding lots of fragments of them in it as well. So combining that together, it suggests that uh, what we're looking at here was probably, or at least good uh, indications that it, would, it was wine that had been in these vessels. We have additionally, of course, submitted 11 samples for residue analysis to Patrick McGovern, who's part of the project at the University of Pennsylvania, since he is the godfather of all things ancient alcohol. And positive results were obtained in six of the 11 samples, and not just from one site, from bo both sites. Uh, one of the samples actually producing the highest level of tartaric acid McGovern has ever even seen. We actually have one good radiocarbon date fortuitously obtained from the exact same locus, basically centimeters away from where the, one of the positive samples came from at Shulabetis, which give us a, a two sigma date of 5985 to 5805, suggest, suggesting that these grapes were collected and being processed into, well, a secondary product of some case, and all of the evidence points to wine uh, as early as about 6000 BC. These results were published last November in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, which you might have seen we got a little bit of press about uh, all over the world, uh, even actually making the Guinness Book of World Records. That was something I had not anticipated. Uh, but we also anticipate, uh, well, further discoveries in, in coming years. We actually had a couple samples this year that came from the even newer lower levels. So we might be pushing back wine production a little bit further. Uh, and we also have another first in the pipeline, if you will. Uh, we also have evidence, perhaps, of the oldest use of honey from that hearth at, uh, at, at, in Operation 1 at Chulaveres Gora. So you'll probably be seeing more of us in the future. So we have evidence that wine was developed in Caucasia, at least by the 6th millennium. The interesting question is, how did it spread across the ancient world? And to that, we have an interesting little possibility here. Now, the fourth millennium saw the development of urbanism and organized long-distance trade in the Near East, uh, which linked southern Mesopotamia with Iran Eastern An and eastern Anatolia. At the same time, it saw the development in South Caucasia of what will eventually be one of the most widespread and longest-lasting cultures in Near Eastern archaeology, what's often known as the early Transcaucasian culture or uh, the Kuraraxes uh, culture as well. This culture is distinguished by its highly recognizable and distinct ceramics. They are all basically <clears throat> handmade, all heavily burnished, and frequently decorated with this red and black color combination, as well as having ribbing or incision. By the third millennium, this culture can be found over a large swath of the Near East. That's that purple blob that you see on the map there. Now, because of its wide distribution, it was, quote-unquote, discovered uh, early last century, several times by many different archaeologists, many of whom had little contact with each other and definitely did not speak the same languages. As a result, this culture has been given several different regional names, 
Kuroratsi's culture in South Caucasia, Yannick culture in, uh, in Iran, the Karaz culture in Eastern Anatolia, Red Black Burnish Ware culture, thanks to Braidwood, uh, in, uh, well, Northern Syria, and the Kirbet Karak culture in Palestine. Now, this obviously nomenclature is a little, little bit of a problem, if you will, uh, and so we now call it the Kuraraxis cultural tradition, just to make things a little bit easier, or KAC. I like my acronyms, I'm sorry. So to make a long story short, or at least a long and boring dissertation short, the distribution of the KAC is wide, and the reason for its presence in these, all these different areas uh, varies from situation to situation. What we can say is that some isolated examples are probably the result of trade. Uh, and there's definitely cases of copying or emulation. But the overall pattern, the picture that we have, uh, fits, well, uh, well, a pattern of small-scale immigration, probably originally the result of traders or pastoral nomads, followed later by small form farmers who, t who slowly integrate on the outside of indigenous settlement systems in what uh, has been described as a diaspora community living alongside these indigenous communities in a sort of a symbiotic relationship. Now, one of the most remarkable features about the KAC uh, culture is that it's staunchly conservative in nature, living as foreign groups in, in, in lands for significant periods of time. Uh, in Caucasia, the culture is around, around for about 1,000 to 1,200 years. Uh, Eastern Anatolia, about 800 years. Syro-Mesopotamia, oh sorry, Syro-Mesopotamia about 800 years, Palestine close to 400. The question is, how is this done? How can these foreigners, the KAC, live side by side with these people for such a long period of time and not to come into contact with or conflict with, over resources? What are these people doing in these new homelands? What is the economic niche these people are fitting into? That's one of the big questions. Now, ethnohistoric studies have shown that, with rare exceptions, migrants tend to move into territories to which they are pre-adapted. In plain English, generally migrants will move into territories in which they are used to, where they can grow familiar crops, uh, they're used to the weather, uh, etc. So the distribution of Kuroraxi's settlements across the Near East show clear patterning in settlement uh, with occupation in similar geographic and environmental settings. And when you look at the wide distribution, you really wouldn't think that, but when you actually do break it down, there is a lot of similarity. The different regions that they settle in are all rich in agricultural potential uh, of, and of, of different crop choice. Uh, but the key thing is that that they have a, the uh, they all have basically wide uh, agricultural potential. That is, many of the crops that are, are many crops that are not indigenous to this area can be brought in and grown there. So these migrants are settling into an ecological niche that they are specially suited to, either culturally, technologically, or with their economic activities. The question of course is which crop? And I think you can see where I'm going here. When you overlay the distribution of where grapes grow naturally with the distribution of the Kuroraxi settlements, a striking pattern emerges. <clears throat> you can see here, there's most of them really sort of fit into that strange little purple zone where grapes will grow naturally. Is this my, yeah, there we go. There is, of course, this large 
blob here where they are not found, but that's a, there's actually a different argument for that that I can't really go into, but it deals with a sort of subset of the Koroxi's culture that we're probably dealing more with uh, pastoral nomadism. So we're looking at a culture coming from an area with a long history of wine production, emerging, if you remember, in the climatic optimum of grape production in Caucasia. So the, the, the Koroxi's culture probably would have had vita and viticulture in their economic tool belt. Now what you have to keep in mind is that horticultural pursuits require a different set of skills rather than agriculture. There's a lot more human intervention, not just in the propagation of the species, but the selection of desirable traits, care, and maintenance. Viticultural is particularly more labor-intensive. It's a year-round pursuit, requires greater investment, and takes a long time to learn. You have to learn how to identify, well, how to protect the, protect the plants from pests, fungi, bacteria. It's not something that everybody can learn, but it's intensive knowledge that has to be, well, as best handed down at sort of the family level. The end product, of course, can vary. You could have fruit, raisins, syrup, vinegar, but the benefits of the domesticated variety can be found in ooh, a luxury item that would have been in demand by the elites in the developing urban centers of the Near East in the third millennium. The timing is just right. So wine. Keep in mind, wine is a finite commodity. Only a limited amount can actually be made or maintained every year. So that kind of gives it a high status. But it's also kind of renewable at the same time. You can still grow more the next year once you run out. <laughs> so this hypothetical uh, viticultural uh, economic niche is what probably allowed the Kuroroxis to remain independent and retain their cultural distinctiveness for such a long period of time because they were basically living apart from the rest of the people working and producing uh, their own crop that the others couldn't really do. Sort of a closed shop, if you will. And this might explain what's happening in the archaeological record. So we've got evidence of, um, of wine production in, in, uh, in the Caucasus. What can we actually link to wine production with the Kuroxis themselves? So this is, some of our earliest evidence comes from this cave site in Armenia called Arani-1. Uh, it's been excavated for a number of years by a joint uh, American-Armenian team, uh, previously known, of course, for having uh, the, the best and oldest preserved shoe, which you're looking at there. Uh, but now, actually, what you have on the right, uh, tucked away in the back, is um, perhaps the earliest evidence of wine production, or at least the oldest wine press that you see here. Uh, and found possibly in association with Koroxi's ceramics. I say possibly because there's a lot of stratigraphic debate amongst the archaeologists right now. Oh, sorry, and there, this is some of the uh, grape pips that were, or vine, vine pieces and grape pips that were actually found in the vessels when they were uh, uh, excavating them. However, I believe some of our most prolific evidence comes from the Koroxi's ceramics themselves, so the ceramic repertoire. Although there is differentiation in the ceramics throughout that whole large distribution zone, there's a series of forms that can be found throughout. And these, I would suggest, represent a wine kit, or a collection of, uh, of vessels for the preparing and serving of wine. Now, what do I mean by a wine kit? Well, okay, we'll do a little informal poll here. Um, how many people, raise your hands, how many people have different glasses for red or white wine? Different glasses for champagne. 
wine bucket, decanters. Anybody have a saber? No sabrage? Really? I finally have one person? Saber for, wine, for opening wine. Oh. You had me excited there for a moment. Where's the art in that? So, uh, what we have here are drinking bowls and storage jars. Uh, and these are the ones that are almost always decorated with that red and black color combination. They're also heavily burnished and exhibit the same sort of, well, we, we call it a chyma recta shape. And this is, again, we thank Braidwood for this wonderful term. Uh, basically, just an S-shaped curve to the vessel itself. Uh, and often they will have a little umphalus base, a little button on the bottom that actually you can hold your fingers in better for when you're drinking. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, this shape, this S-shaped curve, will eventually start to be copied uh, in, uh, in the later local ceramics as well. We also have these jars that, that are, that, well, that, that could for storage for some kind. They're always, they're always uh, decorated, if you will. Often also have this weird angle that they sit on. I haven't quite figured out what that is about. Um, which could be, we're suggesting, early cuebris or uh, wine storage vessels. They only sit about 60 liters or something like that, so they're a little smaller than I would like, but we're still trying to sort that out. What's going on here? Oh. So, can we actually say that these things held uh, wine? Well, in examining some of these, uh, these chimerecta jars from, from Tainat, uh, actually, these ones are actually excavated by the OI excavations back in the 1930s that are sitting in the Antaki Museum today. Uh, we see this pattern on the inside here. Uh, it's basically a spalling pattern that, from what we understand, actually is, is something that shows up on all later sort of vessels that we use for uh, storing wine, for amphoras and stuff like that. Because what you have is the wine will be put in there and it'll still sometimes ferment a little bit. The wine will actually sort of permeate the clay and then as the CO2 is released, it sort of spalls off little chunks of clay on the inside. So it leaves this telltale pattern. And it's shown up on quite a lot of these jars. Uh, Back in 2014, when I first uh, was invited over to, to, to Georgia, they basically opened up the storerooms of the National, well, of, of the National Museum, and I was poking around all of their vessels there, and you have the same telltale pattern on a lot of these store jars uh, in Georgia as well. So although this is not as definitive as residue analysis, this me methodology suggests that these chimerecta storage jars were used for storing some sort of fermenting liquid. Given our data that we've been pulling together, I think we can comfortably suggest that this was probably wine. One final little bit of evidence that really sort of links the Koroxes culture and wine is actually a bit of new data. I think it's in the middle of coming out in press. Uh, but palynological investigations from two zoomorphic rita that were obtained from the excavations of uh, Didopolis Gora in Georgia. Basically, it's a Kororoxy cemetery where they found uh, a couple of these vessels that were deposited in the, in the graves, uh, showed that same pollen spectra for wine, suggesting that these things probably were used in some sort of funerary rite of a Kororoxy's funeral. Okay, so we have our evidence that the Kororoxy's might have had something to do with wine production. 
question is, what effect does this have on them and the indigenous cultures that they're living with in these regions that they migrate into? So here we're coming back to the Mook Plain, where the OI in Braidwood himself originally excavated. Now the University of Toronto has sort of taken over the excavations at Tynot, uh, where we have a, a perfect test case to see how it actually affected everybody. But we actually won't be looking at Tynot itself, we'll be looking at the data from uh, Telachana, which the OI actually was excavating at as well for a number of years. <coughs> so the Middle and Late Bronze Age period of Achana, sorry, Achana was excavated by the British under Sir Leonard Woolley. Uh, large swaths of, of, uh, of palaces uh, were, were uncovered in the excavations, and Woolley also uncovered a great number of tablets uh, due to the Middle and Late Bronze Age. Uh, at this point, Alalak was uh, sort of the capital of this kingdom of Mukish and a vassal state of Yamhad, which is uh, the modern city of Aleppo. Now, the large collection of tablets uh, give us a lot of idea or a lot of data regarding the settlements of the regions uh, and their associated fields, but more importantly for us, their vineyards as well. Uh, the, what, what are called the Alalak census lists, they record the number of, uh, of, of Bitu or, or, well, or Bitu households at the different settlements, and they tell us. Uh, you know, how, which uh, household, or the tablets tell us uh, how much of a vineyard each household actually had. So one household had one iku of vineyard, which is about 0.63 hectares of, of a vineyard. Now, if you estimate the number of households, you can identify the amount of vineyards. And so this is actually some work that was initially started by Jesse Kasana, a former OI student. And when you look at it, when you dig through the census list, you have 19, uh, you have small sites. If you do the math, it would have 19 hectares of vines. Medium-sized sites would have 31 hectares of vines. And the large sites would have 95 hectares of vines. Using uh, basically a Hittite Late Bronze Age uh, text that talk about how much wine can be produced from an iku of a vineyard, you can sort of calculate how much is actually done. So our smaller sites, the 19 hectares of vines, could produce 11,400 liters of wine. This is, of course, provided that all the grapes go towards wine production. Our medium size would do 18,600. Our largest site would produce uh, 57,000 liters of wine. The texts show 80 small sites, 10 medium sites, and three large, which suggests that the Amuk region alone could produce 1,269,000 liters of wine a year. Or to put in something that's more relatable to us, 1.69 million 750 milliliter bottles, so standard wine bottles a year. Not an substantial amount of wine. <coughs> now, how can we compare this to the early Bronze Age? So if you overlay, using the settlement data, overlay the Kuroroxi settlements with that of the, the Middle and Late Bronze Age, you can see that there is a lot of correlation. You have a lot of sites that overlap, if you will, and suggest at least that the Kuroroxi's culture probably could have actually produced an equal or even greater amount of wine in the early Bronze Age. And then actually as another little uh, piece of evidence, this is from our excavations at Tainat. Uh, if you remember James, the the pod, the pit of despair, as it was affectionately called. Uh, here you have, basically, this is a wine press and a jar that would have collected the wine as it was pressed in. So we can actually say that in the, in the early Bronze Age, they are making wine at the site. So these Kuroroxi sites 
had the potential to create, create a lot of wine, and these people were living on these small farmsteads outside the cities, producing this needed commodity. And it's probably this is what allowed the Koraxis to remain independent for so long and preserve their culture for such a long time. And maybe the Koraxis uh, culture, or their wine culture at least, had an effect on the Syro-Mesopotamian cultures as well. But do we see evidence of this? So the fourth millennium roughly sees the introduction of the Koraxis culture into uh, northwestern Syria with their little distinctive wine kit. Now, over a period, as I said earlier, you can see that at the beginning, before, uh, in the phase G period, so the late Calcolithic period, when they're just coming in, there are no drinking cups in the uh, local assemblage. When the Koraxis come in, they have their distinctive kit, and eventually, as I said, we start to see them emulating these same drinking bowls. Over time, as you move on through the early Bronze Age, in this case the early EB23, we see an explosion in drinking paraphernalia that emerges in the non-Koraxi ceramics. Uh, you can see all the goblets here and, and the jars. Uh, at first, in this early period, they seem to be only confined to elite contexts, if you will. Uh, and then finally, by the EB4, drinking vessels are found all over elite and non-elite settings. And these vessels spread all throughout Syro-Mesopotamia. But the question is, of course, how do we know that these guys are actually drinking wine out of these cups? Because, you know, after all, this is Mesopotamia, essentially. This is, you know, the, the land of beer. You know, Greek traditions hold that Dionysus visited Mesopotamia once, and only once, and ran away screaming because they didn't have any wine. <laughs> Never to come back again, apparently. You know, in the Gilgamesh epic, uh, Tablet 2, uh, beer is described as the lot of the land. It's one of the aspects of civilization that tamed uh, uh, Enkidu. Well, beer and prostitutes, but that's a whole other area of research, I think. <laughs> the Enuma Elish talks about drinking beers from straws, and you have scenes from, well, in this case here, the, uh, uh, well, various scenes on seals where they are drinking beer, or drinking stuff from straws, from vessels. Here you actually, oops, I wrong one here. Uh, here you actually have a nice silver straw that was actually came from the tomb of Puabi. And if you just want sort of a frame of reference, are you going to come? Nope. Uh, here, a little ethnographic photo, a bunch of, uh, of Kariki, so West African tribesmen who are sitting around a giant pot of beer drinking through straws. Drinking beer in groups through straws is found in all forms of, uh, of Mesopotamian art. You can see it here and here, uh, except for, well, what's that guy doing there? He's got something a little bit different. There he is again. Uh, these guys here, these, they're drinking something more than beer. What's going on here? Well, of course, well, the argument was that for a long time they were probably drinking date wine. Uh, but Sumerian and Akkadian actually have a word for grape wine as opposed to date wine. <laughs> the um, in this case here, you can see sort of the evolution of the signs themselves. Uh, Sumerian Geshtin, Akkadian Karanu. Uh, the top left is your Sumerian symbol for, for well, or your earliest, I guess maybe late Uruk symbol for wine. Uh, often been suggested that that comes from a grape uh, a, group, a cluster of grapes, or perhaps actually a jar. I think I like that idea a little bit better. Um, so they clearly had an idea of grape, grape wine. 
So what do the textual records actually tell us about wine in Mesopotamian societies? Well, in southern Mesopotamia, Iraq, in the third millennium, it's exceedingly rare. But in the north, that's a totally different story. <coughs> Syro-Mesopotamia in the third millennium, dominated, of course, by the, uh, by the city of Ebla, city-state of Ebla. Uh, and more importantly for us, it's very close to us in the Amuk. Now, in the records from, from Ebla, consumption of wine is wide, and it grows over time. Uh, and as it appears that uh, as wine becomes more common in society, production actually becomes more centralized, first by the regional centers and later by Ebla itself. The texts actually describe wine that's being delivered uh, by Eblates who are actually going out into the countryside to collect it, uh, usually coming from regions nearby, but also actually afar, coming up from probably the Karkamesh area as well. Sometimes they're brought to the, to the palace, sometimes the palace confiscates it, uh, but it seems to be that people are actually drinking wine fairly widely. And this is the period where we start to see the, the wine vessels popping up in sort of the elite quarters, if you will, of, of society. As we move into the next period where we start to see the spread of drinking vessels throughout uh, the, the Northwest Syria, wine is basically being, drinken, uh, being drunken by more and more people. And what I would suggest is that as production starts to get centralized, uh, the wine production is taken out of the hands of our little independent Kuratsis, vintners, in their viticultural villages. Robbed of their little economic niche, they lose their cultural cohesion that allowed their culture to basically to resist and survive for such a long time. And they slowly uh, basically fade into the cultural background. In the second millennium, wine, as we see, well, wine we see become much more cemented and a common beverage for all, if you will. Uh, Mari is, of course, a major depot and re redistributor of wine. They're sending ship, uh, shipments of wine down to Sippar in Iraq. Uh, the, the records uh, talk about wine being sent as royal gifts to uh, Mari or from Mari for various kings. And more interesting for us, actually, we have detailed tablets from the wine traders where they not only tell us where they're getting their wine from, from Karkamesh and also from the Aleppo area, but also from the Habur area, the Turabdin area as well. So they're ranging far to get their wine. And they also give us an idea how profitable wine trade is. So these guys are going up north to sort of the, the Karkamesh area. They're, they're paying one shekel for six jars of wine, so about 180 liters of wine for, for uh, one shekel. When these guys come to Mari, they're selling those same bottles of wine for two and a half shekels. And when those jars get down to Sippar, they're selling the same for four. So it's quite profitable. Or it can be for some, I suppose. So, summing up, if you will, the sixth millennium sees the birth of sort of viticulture in the Caucasus. By the fourth millennium, wine is actually one of the commodities that's starting to be traded uh, from Iran and southeastern Anatolia. The third and the second millennium saw a similar pattern, but we will start to eventually see more centralization of production uh, over time, particularly at places like Ebla and Mari. Wine becomes a lot more common throughout the second millennium, uh, well, specifically in the north, but still not so common, or at least not as pervasive in society in southern Mesopotamia. Production really sort of hits its peak in the Iron Age, if you will, about 1000 BC. Now, at this point, the Phoenicians, who are from the northern Levantine world, and if you really want to generalize, are essentially sort of a continuation of the Bronze Age civilizations of Ebla and Mari. They become the major wine producers and traders. 
Their ships ply the Mediterranean, filled with where am I here? Phoenician wine amphora. Uh, and their wine is made from grapes that appear to bear direct genetic lines to grapes from the Caucasus in eastern Anatolia, a variety that's known as Vitis vinifera pontica. The Phoenicians also established wine industries in places like Sicily, Sardinia, North Africa, Spain, and Portugal, which, if you remember back to the beginning of the talk, parallels nicely with the genetic data that was emerging from our studies. Perhaps we're looking at varieties from Caucasia that were maybe initially brought by our Kuraxes migrants, brought into Syro-Mesopotamia, and they continued to thrive throughout the Bronze Age and into the Iron Age, and they are then eventually transported west across the Mediterranean by the Phoenicians. And we see that genetic echo even today in wines coming from Spain and Italy, or Spain and, uh, and Portugal. The same time as the Phoenicians, of course, in the east, Wine uh, in the rest of the Syro-Mesopotamia as well has become a common beverage. You know, under the Assyrians, uh, wine is a major tribute item coming from places like Dilzanu up by Lake Van, but more importantly again, Unki, which is Tainat in the Amuk. For the commemoration of Kalhu in uh, modern Nimrud, the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal II demanded 10,000 skins of wine for the party alone. Uh, the, under, the, under the same uh, King the Habur Nabalik of northern Syria become major wine production centers. Gardens around the Assyrian capital are filled with vines, and we have images of, of, of drinking or attendants holding sticks and, and leading hounds under trees suspended by uh, grapes that really sort of permeate Assyrian art. My favorite, of course, is, uh, is the one here where you have King Ashurbanipal and his, and his wife Ashusharat. They're kind of having perhaps one of the earliest symposia, if you will. Uh, sitting on their couch, drinking wine through, again, one of these little bowls that has a little uh, umphalous base at the bottom, very much like our Kuroxy's bowls. Uh, basically enjoying their wine, unknown that they, like us even today, are enjoying the fruits of a migration out of Caucasia. So in closing, Grape would like to thank our hardworking team who made all of these remarkable achievements possible. And of course, our sponsors, the University of Toronto, the Georgian National Museum, the Ministry of Agriculture of the Republic of Georgia, the Georgian National Wine Agency, the Georgian National Wine Association. I told you they take it very seriously there. Uh, and most especially the Ministry of Cultural and Monuments Protections for providing us with our permission to conduct our research. Thank you.